Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel Tom Spar, an assistant professor in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations here at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. On August 16th, 2021, the world watched as nearly 20 years after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban marched triumphantly into Kabul while coalition forces hastily exited from the airport. Images of this event were broadcast around the world that reminded many eerily of the U.S. exit from Vietnam in 1975. Over 800,000 U.S. service members served in Afghanistan. 2,352 died and over 20,000 were wounded. This conflict dominated many military careers and left a mark on an entire generation of Americans. Here at the Army War College, we are committed to capturing some of the experiences and insights from those who participated in the war in Afghanistan with hopes of informing future generations engaged in similar conflicts. I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the studio Major General Brian Menes, Deputy Commander of the 18th Airborne Corps. Major General Menes is also a mentor of mine, who I've had the pleasure of serving with on three separate tours in Afghanistan. In July of 2021, General Menes transitioned out of command of the 10th Mountain Division, where his division headquarters served as the core of the U.S. Forces Afghanistan and the Resolute Support Staff, and he personally served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations in Kabul. This 2020 to 2021 tour was Major General Menes' sixth deployment to Afghanistan, spanning the length of the war. His previous positions included as Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, planner for the initial invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. He deployed again as a battalion commander in the 82nd Airborne Division, as a battalion commander of the 1st Ranger Battalion several times, and as a brigade commander of the 4th Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division in 2012, where I had the pleasure of serving as his brigade intelligence officer. And then finally, as a division commander through the summer of 2021. He also deployed to Iraq three times along the way, so sir, you've, you've been busy. Major General Menes is a true warrior scholar, and we are fortunate to have him on the podcast today. Sir, you and I served together in 2001 during the invasion, second during that difficult tour in, in 2012 when you were the brigade commander in Western Kandahar province, and then briefly as I was leaving and you were coming to the Resolute Support Headquarters in Kabul during the summer of 2020. Today, I'd like to have a conversation and hear your thoughts on Afghanistan and what we can learn from this conflict and what you can share about military leadership in combat. So, sir, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Tom, I really appreciate the introduction and, uh, you know, really grateful, one, for your service personally uh, to our team um, and, and more importantly to the, the dedication and service of uh, so many who, you know, threw their life literally into this uh, endeavor. So really happy to be with you here today, Tom. Great. Thanks, sir. So were you surprised when the Afghan army fell so quickly and the Taliban seized Kabul? Yeah, and I, you know, sort of regretted thinking you might ask that question. Um, 
and you know before i answer you know as i as i said we we threw so much into it uh on so many levels um but but no i was not surprised um i was not surprised because of how much energy it took you know from an external force to help determine what even security was in the towns and villages uh you know across afghanistan <clears throat> you know i i reflect to many, many analysis we got from the IC and others about uh, really, you know, who was in control of what area, where was uh, peace and security, you know, where was the reach of the government. And, and traditionally, I'd see um, charts that I was pretty much um, aware of and agreed with that showed that we didn't really, we being us partnered with the DROA and ANSF, um, have a lot of control. And where we did have control was, um, you know, accompanied by, you know, a lot of economic prosperity, let's say in Kandahar, the major metropolitan areas. But we didn't really have a lot of reach outside of uh, those urban communities. And so um, watching that, I knew that, um with the lack of political support for really their security forces or the security forces uh, inability to bond with communities, you know, old community policing that we, we had sort of thought we would get after or try to support. It really, really, in my opinion, never took root. So it, it seemed to me without our direct intervention um, that the Taliban uh, continued to, you know, have a dominance across the majority of Afghanistan, freedom and maneuver, ability to resupply themselves, you know, a lot of military qualities that they really had a distinct advantage of and uh, interior lines, um, you know, mass, uh, you know, qualities that we're all very familiar with as military leaders. And so, you know, certainly then when, you know, we departed and we weren't there to provide that support, you know, it was not a surprise to me that, you know, the military was not able to hold up, um, for any length of time. Yes, sir. So you, you mentioned that we struggled in those rural areas. <clears throat> yeah. You and I, you know, we were, when we were in Western Canada, I felt like, you know, we made progress and we made progress on some of the tours. Um, and I think back to that experience and that was 2012 and, and doing counterinsurgency, but then it, it seemed like it unraveled years later and, and we were there even when we were there, we saw it and we were frustrated uh, with some incompetence and corrupt leaders, uh, police brutality and corruption, and at times even our own government because of changing policies. So when you had to go back, sir, in, in spring of 2020 as a, as a division commander, did you feel that there was still hope uh, for the government of Afghanistan? I, I did not in its current form. You know, I, I didn't see, um, you know, certainly reflecting on my experience there in Afghanistan, you know, personally, uh, uh, during my battalion command tour with the, the great one fury team, I had the opportunity to serve General McNeil as his theater tactical force commander. And in that capacity uh, with the surge going on 15 months, I lived a large uh, majority of those months out in villages. And that was villages across the country, as far North as Nuristan, you know, Nangarhar, all around Kabul and in the South Hellman. Um, so we, we had this, remarkable opportunity to meet a lot of Afghans. And across the board, I found that the, their desires for government was, were um, not congruent with what Jero was going to provide. And so um, also having reading, read a lot about the Afghans, you know, one book I read early was called My Life with the Taliban by Abu Saif, um, who described a movement of the Taliban that was 
really put in place to take off the chains that were imposed by the uh, Mujahideen warriors that we had sort of supported during, you know, the Russian war. And so in 89, 88, 89, they come in power. And as you know, those people corrupted what was the local form of government. So the traditional tax base paid to a Malik um, where justice was uh, <clears throat> imposed was disrupted. And so the Taliban back in those days wanted to take back a government and, and create a government for the people by the people. And frankly, to me, it was very appealing reading that, you know, I'm not sure that if I was in Sangsar or Western Kandahar in those days, I wouldn't have joined up with them, frankly. Now, you know, their absolute power corrupted. Absolutely. They got in bed with the, you know, nefarious actors and, and, and created a government that was sort of uh, not recognizable by Western people and, and, and certainly too extreme. So, Certainly, that wasn't uh, good for the people of Afghanistan. But all in all, I, I didn't think that Jaroa offered a lot of opportunity for self-local governance. You know, the the Maliks did not have um, an opportunity to, you know, decide for themselves. You know, how to um, deal with the resources and constraints, etc. And so, I, I I did not think that the government was going to uh, last um, without significant significant change to the Taliban movement, meaning we'd have to almost annihilate it or exhaust it to the point where uh, that government could flourish on its own on its own right. So the, the government of Afghanistan's constitution formed in the bond, I think should have been reevaluated. I, I don't think that's different from when America came together, that little experiment in 76. If I'm not mistaken, it took us six, seven, eight years to, you know, move from an article of confederation to a constitution, which I think is natural with a, a burgeoning government. And so I just don't believe that we um, push to have the uh, Afghan people, you know, and leaders come together to, to reassess how, you know, how they wanted to design their government. I think that was a, a fatal flaw, frankly. Yes, sir. And even if, if that change had made, sir, would you, do you think we would have needed a, a small U.S. footprint to persist there? For no, you think, you, I think you could have. I think the support that we could have provided both uh, militarily, security, governmental, you know, um, I, I hate to say sort of normal governmental relations with, you know, a constituents of other uh, embassies in Kabul, you know, certainly if accepted by the Taliban as a contributor to the health of a combined Afghanistan, I think would have definitely been something that could have been, you know, entertained. You know, even as I watched uh, the Taliban ourselves work against ISIS, you know, you saw the Taliban sort of come together with Jaroa and us at in certain occasions in, in uh, parts of the campaign where we had a shared desire to keep external forces out of Afghanistan. So when I looked at that, I thought, well, well, jeepers, I think, you know, there, there could have been a little bit more um, shared values than, uh, you know, pure differences. You know, it was I don't think it was completely polar, you know, with my communication to, you know, both parties, you know, limited as it may have been in some regards, I thought there was a lot more similarities than, than dissimilarities. Unfortunately, Jaroa, the people that, that were governing it, didn't benefit at all from change because they had everything to lose, right? So I think it was very difficult to um, you know, encourage them without some significant leverage that I thought, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Ambassador Closar, you know, might be able to, uh, to render, but, you know, very, very difficult situation. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think the government of Afghanistan, Jaroa fit what the community wanted. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that was the root of what, you know, their challenges were obviously. 
Yes, sir. So even if we were having success tactically, it's kind of doesn't matter if the strategy and the government. No, I, I think, you know, as you said, Tom, I was always so grateful for work of you and others, you know, as I um, was there with you, you know, trying to determine what was best for our unit, for the community we served with and for, you know, frankly, um, I felt very, very committed to try to figure out, you know, how not to do harm, you know, so how could we, right. you know, bring things to that community uh, and assist them with, mm-hmm. you know, having a discussion. I guess that was what I was hopeful for with establishing security, security for what, you know, I thought it could, Hey, can we have more political discourse? Can we have an opportunity from people in the village to express their desires to a governor that really was a foreigner to them? Right. So the, the, the local governor was, was not a person from Zari or, you know, even Kandahar for that matter. Um, so I think, um, you know, I was grateful for the work we did at so many levels. I think, you know, through that work, did we improve the healthcare for Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Did we provide a literacy rate, dramatic improvement? Absolutely. Did we open the, the Afghan people up to external information sources that they never had before? Absolutely. Did child mortality rate go way down? Yes. But that child mortality rate reduction actually created a youth bulge that during my last tour, we had a lot of a, a remarkable amount of teenagers looking for work. And of, of course, who was willing to pay them? you know, if, if they didn't have a lot of skills and, you know, certainly that was, uh, you know, Taliban and others that that causes us a lot of problem. Yeah. And it, you know, it got to the point where it became so politically charged, even to have any U S forces there, both for the Taliban and for the U S many who just didn't even want any, anybody in Afghanistan that even with that, 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 we couldn't even keep that small footprint. Um, even though we have small footprints in over a hundred other countries around the world, um, so it made it, it made it, it difficult when the, you know, the military, military objective, it doesn't necessarily align with what makes sense politically related to that, sir. I, I would like to talk about civil military relations, uh, something we discuss with the students a lot here at the war college. Um, I imagine, and I observed that civil military relations were difficult in 2020 and 2021, uh, for the military leadership. And sir, you were in the middle of it. Um, how, how do you handle a situation as a military leader when you don't necessarily ad- agree with the political direction? You see a bleak future for the mission, but, but you have to have to edu- execute your orders. Yeah, I think, you know, for all of us, you know, from a military leader, I watched General Miller negotiate this with remarkable acumen. I, I you know, I used to empathize and admire him in the way like so many commanders before him tried to negotiate, you know, again, how to do best for his forces, how to do best for his Afghan friends, which many of them were military that he fought with uh, and help try to help uh, the government of Afghanistan. And, and, you know, his frustrations um, with um, governmental political things that weren't necessarily supporting, you know, maybe the way he desired, but, you know, terrifically, you know, his responsibility was to provide his best military advice. And so I witnessed, uh, you know, a remarkable leader continuing and very skillfully lay out, you know, ways that uh, he thought we could help, which again, I, I think for what it's worth, what we were offered, you know, we, you know, genuine, you know, brilliance in, in a lot of ways, like a lot of our military leaders. But on that, on the other hand, as you're, as you're sort of watching this with is what I described earlier, not quite sure where the government can take us in this environment. Um, mm-hmm. I think I reflect a little bit on what Clausewitz might say, you know, if we even re- retrace what our goals were 
when I was with JSOC in 2001, you know, I, I, it was very apparent to me after the first couple of days of uh, being with them that, okay, hey, what's next? What's the strategy? What do we hope for? And, and you know, uh, Clausewitz would say, hey, General, before you start this war, you know, you better be sure to understand the peace you hope to create. And I think I'm a, I'm a big fan of the old uh, intelligence preparation of the battlefield. I think it was uh, 30, uh, FM 34-130. And what I really was attracted to that was the amount of time they spent on characterizing the battle space, understanding the battlefield effects, so that you understand you know, the cause and effect of our actions, not only in the military force, your opposition potentially, but the community. And so as I started to, as I said, studying a little bit more about the battlefield effects, you know, and from a Clausewitzian, okay, what do we hope to achieve? You know, I was certainly like, hopefully most of us questioning, you know, are we, are we taking the right path? And so I think it's a little bit about civil military relations, but I think it's more about um, ways we take on defense, you know, foreign policy. Uh, I'm very attracted to a publication that was commissioned by uh, Bill Gates called the, the Project on National Security Forum that outlines some ways structurally, you know, maybe we could be closer together. Um, and this document is very similar to the Goldwater Nichols Act, which forced the joint staff, excuse me, the joint players to come together. What, um, what Gates advocates in that is that, you know, we, we should be much, 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 much closer all the time, not just during conflict. Um, now that said, I've seen some amazing individual efforts across the team, but I just don't know structurally if, if we uh, might be able to open up that document that again was <laughs> commissioned by our government that outlines ways to grow, you know, um, a closer alignment of defense activities, um, which I think, you know, would help us all, frankly. Yes, sir. I, that makes sense. And the, you know, even beyond the joint players, um, brilliant minds involved. And I remember we had such a great team in Western Canada, a very diverse team. Um, and in Kabul in 2020, we had a very diverse team. Which brings me to my next question, um, going even beyond the joint to the interagency. Uh, I'd like to hear about your experience with the State Department and U.S. Agency for International Development and USAID. What are your observations um, about repeatedly working uh, with these agencies and other agencies um, from the interagency and, and what worked, what didn't work and what can we learn from it? Yeah, I think, you know, taking account of what I just described, um, what I found was usually amazing people, uh, people there just with a desire to help the people of Afghanistan, embracing things that they brought to the table with the hopes of what they brought to the table would make a positive difference in the outcome of community wellness in, endeavors or, you know, future security of, let's say, Kandahar. And so, you know, I was always chief to try to support those folks within limits. Those limits would be to, well, hey, if, if our campaign plan says, hey, we'd like to give the community a voice on, you know, choosing things that come to their environment, their area, uh, whether it's uh, economics or welfare type affairs, you know, certainly we should try to offer them stuff. So 
But though, if there's something that they don't necessarily want or need, do we build the school anyway? You know, for example, do we, do we, you know, have an endeavor for, or a mandate that uh, women's rights are immediately imposed upon a society that is not ready for it, notwithstanding its legitimate universal rights that we were interested in? You know, my question is imposing um, things that culturally they can't support yet you know, how, how does that work? And I, I, I was, I wouldn't say frustrated necessarily, but always intrigued on how best to leverage everybody's capabilities. As you said, a very, very diverse uh, group with us in, in Zari, Western Kandahar, um, that, you know, our job was to try to unify their efforts. Matter of fact, you know, to the point, you know, we thought, you know, if you remember, we made our, our, our regimental coin, it was about the group. It, you know, it was called Unified Command Team Zari. We chose the word Unified Command Team very deliberately. It was, it was all the interagency players. It was the government of Jeroa. It was the Afghan National Security Forces, the police, as well as then the people. You know, so our hope was to help bring that community together to have a discussion about how best to serve their community. Yes, and I, I, I was impressed, you know, matter of fact, I'm looking at the coin over my shoulder here in the office about that symbol that you guys helped create that involved all those interagency players. So once again, excellent people, but what I get back to discussion we had earlier on unifying our security, our national defense efforts, which I think is like any business management, just a, a remarkable challenge that uh, I think we should continue to embrace. Yes, sir. I remember doing the Fury Shura every month or so. Every time new people would flow in or flow out, we'd bring together a unified team and the Afghans into a room and talk talk about where we were going. So your your point about culture. Well, like, I really quick, Tommy. Yeah, you know, I think talk yeah. about where we're going. I, you know, I almost, you know, if I reflect, it was listening <laughs> more than was, anything. Right? And Absolutely. so the prep for that, the prep for those meetings that you know only happen eight times in our, you know, mm-hmm. big meetings. What I was impressed with is how many meetings guy like Guy Jones had down in you know uh, by Sangsar, right. where he was listening, where he was trying to understand, where, where he would ask his interagency partners, "Hey, just come listen. Let's determine how to, you know, best fit into what they've got going on." Um, and I, I'm I'm just telling you through that, you know, a ridiculously dangerous area was made less dangerous because I think you know people didn't necessarily see us as the enemy, you know, overtly, um, not not least of which a remarkable amount of just being present at any, any place, you know, both the friendly and, you know, people willing to do us harm would see us. So I think the, you know, and I just wanted to interrupt you. I'm sorry, is not only not telling them what to do, but listening and having a dialogue about what we could do. Certainly I would tell them, frankly, I can remember many times where we'd go into a new area. We'd, I'd asked to meet with the community members and I did this more with one fury and we'd go to a new place. Let's call, uh, we try to liberate uh, Musakala, you know, a uh, uh, very Taliban held uh, important spot in, in, in Hellman. And, you know, as soon as we get in there, I would ask to, you know, as soon as, you know, probably clear a space, you know, to give us some, some um, with, you know, virtually zero collateral damage, I'll have to ask, I'll have to tell you how, how remarkable it was to watch them. I would ask to meet with the locals and then explain to them that I understood they were Taliban and I, I thought that was okay. And oh, how'd you said, we're not Taliban, we're not Taliban. I'm going to say, hey, bro, it's okay. If you're Taliban, you know, what your political beliefs are, who you're aligned with. But what I'm asking you is not to express yourself violently while we're here. 
because my guys are very good and it's going to go very badly for you. And <laughs> Tom, just that practical talk to them and then just listening. I said, hey, while we're here, we want to try to be your friends. I don't know how, how long we'll be here. I know that's a reach for us to be your friends because I'm here with a lot of people with guns and I came forcibly. But, you know, we ask you to have a dialogue with us. And I'm just telling you almost to the man or person, you can see him nodding her head and accept it. And then, you know, asked to meet day after day just to talk, find out how we were doing so that I would listen to their concerns, I thought was a, a major step for them is that we weren't there just to, again, direct what was happening. You know, notwithstanding, I, I can't imagine, you know, how I couldn't be imposing upon them when, you know, I arrived with, you know, 800 people with weapons, right? So um, to me, I just wanted to interrupt you. We were trying to listen as much as anything and understand, you know, how to help. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great, sir. Um, sir, back to your point on, on culture. You know, we say that culture jumps, uh, trumps strategy every time. Changing culture takes a long time. And we look at the U.S. wars throughout history where we were successful in a lasting peace. You know, World War II specifically, a lesser degree, Korea. We were there for a long time. Uh, yet it seemed like in Afghanistan, we were always trying to do things quickly. You know, do them overnight. Um, so one thing I know we were trying to do quickly was that draw the drawdown in, in 2019 to 2020 when I was there. And then when you came in after me, I remember how hard it was from the J2 perspective, trying to remove Intel platforms, cut contracts while trying to ensure we didn't go so deep that we put soldiers at risk. Yet you were dealing with so much more as the ops, uh, as a J3. So in terms of the sheer logistics of the task of withdrawing an army that had been in Afghanistan for 20 years, during COVID, no less, you're trying to do this, what was your greatest challenge um, as the operations officer and a division commander during all this managing? Yeah, I, I, and thanks for asking, Tom. You know, um, Real quick on the first point about our presence, I think, yes, mm -hmm. but if you look at Germany, we weren't still fighting. You know, we were establishing security, establishing, you know, a way to reestablish, uh, you know, Marshall. We had we had something that, we again, we weren't fighting a, an insurgency. Korea, we, some internal stuff, certainly, mm -hmm. you know, skirmishes on the border, but, you know, certainly, you know, south of the border, you know, of course, you know, many people could say dealing with a very corrupt government initially, Japan helping them stand up who was our enemy, but they, you know, very honorably, you know, mm -hmm. uh, acquiesced to that and signed a treaty and they had leadership to work with us to move ahead. So the Afghanistan, I think, was much different because we were still, they were still fighting a civil war. We were still a part of a, an insurgency um, or, you know, et cetera. As far as my, my role is, as the DCOS ops, um, you know, what I found very important was try to enable um, what General uh, Miller was doing. Uh, with him and Ambassador Klozad, his orders from the CENTCOM commander, you know, I thought it was very, very important that we get as flexible and agile as possible so that he was not burdened with any large logistical concern, you know, bases, for example, contractors, uh, equipment, ammunition, you know, other commodities that were um, invested in, in like in Kandahar airfield, for example, and then, you know, do the right thing with working with the State Department. We put in a lot of time to determine how best to um, hand over equipment that would be hopefully handled responsibly, um, hand over airfields. I mean, believe it or not, the energy we put into trying to hand over the running of Kandahar airfield was a major undertaking that was done. Uh, increasingly by a very small number of people because we had a, a force reduction as well. So in addition to um, 
the COVID and everything else, you know, we had a number of, uh, of troops we had to get down to. So a staff in DCOS ops that was well over hundreds a year and a half before I got there was in the low teens. And so, you know, people like Mike Inglis, who was a, a field artillery person that we brought forward for 10th Mountain to be all of a sudden the, the theater G3. I mean, holy cow, this guy, you know, um, performed like so many others and our, and our coalition brothers and sisters helping us in the same manner where we used to have a stable of, you know, I was, I was left with um, Todd Ashurst, one, you know, Aussie general and a couple other folks who did remarkable work and just took on so much more. So I think the, the benefit was, you know, trying to team build, you know, do old fashioned um, process management stuff and really, really get into the weeds everywhere we could in order to understand exactly what needed to be done and get on with making that theater as light as possible. So General Miller and uh, the team had as much options as possible. And oh, by the way, I knew that would be best for our troops. So if we were agile and not, not you know, fixed at a location because just logistics was holding us up, I know you know, if we had to leave in a hurry, if that was the case, we could do so. And so allowed them to think more about tactics than, you know, logistics on, on sort of game day when they needed to. Yeah, not an easy task at all. Sir, changing subjects a little bit. One of the things I have always admired about you is your your commitment uh, to professional development, specifically reading. I remember when, when I was in the brigade, uh, 4th Brigade, and we were deploying, you made us all read Sarah Chai's A Punishment of Virtue. And we were so busy. We're working 16, 18 hours a day preparing to deploy. But but we all did it. And I apologize for that time. It. No, it was great, sir. <laughs> and we talked about it, you know, and, and I think it benefited us when we went in there, um, understanding the culture a little bit better. Just stepping back from that, though, can you just describe to me your philosophy towards personal professional development? And, and what would your advice be to colonels coming out of the war college about how they how to professionally develop yourself and your team? Yeah. And, and Tom, I, 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 th- I think one, I appreciate your discussion about your individual journey. I mean, here's a, a pro that was trying to train Intel teams, trying to train training, excuse me, develop training scenarios for us upon deployment, you know, love and care for your families because you're a great family man and a, and a wonderful husband. Um, as I watch you um, and admire what you are as a father as well, you know, and, you know, eager to continue to learn, you know, to put in that time to read those b- books before you go to bed, you know, when you could be, um, you know, getting seven hours of sleep. I know a person like you is getting five. Um, for us, I think as leaders, you know, asking people to read something, to invest that time, choosing the right thing is really, really important. So, we, you know, we, we didn't, choose Clausewitz. Now, did we have a discussion about coin? Yes. If, if you recall, we gave the, uh, you know, short primers where they could have a quick read. And then we had a dialogue with leaders, which I thought was very, very important about, you know, really going to the why and the, and the hows to a campaign plan as we take a look at ends, ways, and means. But Sarah Chase's example, she has a wonderful example of a person that she, I think, fell in love with, frankly, is a man called Akram, that she actually saw as an, a, a virtuous Afghan. She was there, I think, a soap business or something in the community of Kandahar. And Akram was a hero. He was actually a person of virtue. But what the, the moral of the story is the Afghan uh, environment punishes virtue. You can't be virtuous. And so thus, you know, where you see is all the people that have power have to have power. They can't be self-actualized like we have to give of each other freely. 
there's there's just too much against them. And so, you know, I, I use that as an example of, of something that we read to, together that helped us understand the intelligence preparation, the battlefield. Where are you going? What is the environment you're going to work in? So for you, us military professionals, you know, choosing things for people to read, I think start with what's going to make them really, really good at their job. And, you know, for us, whether that's, uh, you know, how to plan, how to run training management stuff, you know, et cetera, I think it's important that you provide them a list of things to read and then go up the chain of, you know, I guess hierarchy of, Hey, let's start with the basics and move and move forward to, you know, sort of big things. Now there's a lot of wisdom to start with the why, you know, why be a military professional, you know, and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I try to start with, you know, reading things that really matter to the success of, of the unit. And the last topic on that. So Sarah Chase, if, if you can remember the police chief of uh, Canhark is in my office and, um, he starts talking about his old buddy, a guy named Akram. I said, Akram, I said, that can't be. So I go, Sarah's book is on my shelf. I open up the page. And if you can remember that guy gets in tears talking about, cause he was a friend of Akram. Akram got assassinated in Kabul. And from that day forward, he and I were like peas and carrots, right? So here's an example of a person I had never met. Like the day I met him, I have familiarity with him. And, and like from that day forward, as you might recall, someone that, previous commanders had had trouble warming up to uh, just because he was a difficult man you know when he when he and i had that bond about a shared a shared person that he would tell me all the time stories about him it was it was amazing and and uh, you know I, I use that as a another awesome story about just something i stumbled onto with a great book by sarah all right thanks sir so reaching back across your six tours in afghanistan many many of those tours leading large formations of troops uh, as a military leader, what was the hardest thing you had to do? And what do you take away from that experience? Yeah, the hardest thing I had to do is, is uh, many, many of our military leaders, either listening here or I served with or admire and appreciate, you know, I think it was trying to assess, you know, how much risk uh, to ask our soldiers to take um, on our behalf or on the mission's behalf. You know, I, I still, you know, um, recognize my responsibility for asking people to do things um, that cost them limbs, that cost them their lives. You know, I, I look at a man like Travis Mills, who, thank goodness, he is flourishing now as a person, but he's a, you know, he's a, he lost all four of his limbs in uh, Western Kandahar. I look at uh, Corey Rensberg, who I fought with in, um, in Kandahar with the first ranger battalion who suffered, um, and, and is thriving, but nonetheless, you know, was doing things on my behalf, on the unit's behalf, um, and, and, and was, uh, was permanently injured. Um, so I think it was the hardest thing is just trying to, you know, rationalize and sort out what to do, knowing that we were putting men and women at incredible risk that, cost many of them their lives and many more of them, you know, uh, life-changing um, injury. Um, and so I think that was by far the hardest thing. And as I suggested, watching, you know, our strategy, you know, to what end were we going to achieve by that patrol Travis Mills was on that day, right? What, what were we going to achieve by the, the, um, the mission that uh, Corey Rensberg was on that night? Now, I do believe both of those men did good those days that we 
dealt with people that were generally evil. Absolutely. So in a very purist standpoint, I think both of them, you know, were, were doing great things in that night. I think the campaign their units were on were, were just, you know, we were trying to extend thoughts of liberty to people, you know, offer them opportunities to express their desires to a government that we think would be democratic. So I, in, in, in the purest sense, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, those men um, and women that, that we lost and got hurt, you know, that their um, contribution was not in vain. Um, but I will, I will say that certainly um, that by far is, was the biggest uh, challenge. It's, it's just sort of pragmatically were the efforts of my soldiers, our soldiers going to be worth the cost of them being seriously hurt or killed. And that, to me was every day, every day, every minute trying to do that. And so many leaders having to go through that, it, it's just a terrifically um, awesome responsibility that we have, that they have, our leaders have, that even the junior NCOs that would accept my orders to, to, to put people out on, on, on the street or in the helicopter, you know, um, I'm incredibly impressed with how people dealt with that, handled it, and did so very, very, very well. So by far, that was the hardest thing, you know, that I had to experience. So there's any message you want to send out to all the soldiers who served under you in Afghanistan? Well, I think it's, as I just expressed, I mean, you know, my, my gratitude for uh, the loyalty, commitment, uh, shared Army values, and trust that you have in us. You know, I'm just grateful um, to have been in your company, to, to walk with you. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, Hey, you know, if, if I was to retire tomorrow, you know, I've walked with giants. I've, I've, I've stood on shoulders of great men and women. I've watched amazing things happen in front of my eyes, whether that was, you know, caring for a child in a firefight or just giving, you know, an Afghan person, you know, care right after they were fighting us or, you know, reaching out and extending themselves for others. Um, you know, it, it was to me, um, again, humbling. And, uh, um, I say, thanks. I say, thanks for what they do because I think it is a, a part, particularly as you even watch Russians uh, today, you know, uh, uniquely, well, not, I wouldn't say uniquely cause I'm sure a lot of other countries have this, but it is certainly a quality that American people have that, you know, is to me so impressive. So I just say thanks, Tom. And uh, uh, I also think thanks to my Afghan partners who I tried desperately to uh, assist, you know, that they were struggling as well as and DSF, the Afghan National Defense Forces, you know, as they were leading their men and women, you know, how were they going to comport themselves? How did they have to answer to people? You know, so I, they have my empathy and, and admiration in a lot of, a lot of ways uh, also. Well, thank you, sir. And I'm afraid we are out of time. So, so sadly, we have to bring this conversation to an end. But, but, but General Menace, thank you so much for talking to us here at A Better Peace about your experiences in Afghanistan. And it was really great to have you. Um, and thank you to all those who are listening to this conversation. Please send us your comments and thoughts, suggestions for future conversations. We're always excited to hear from our listeners. And until next time, this is Tom Spar. Thanks for listening to A Better Peace the War Room Podcast. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.